When last we were together, we were walking through the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote to the people of Colossae, the church there that was struggling because people from outside, false doctrine was creeping in and causing issues with the church. So he wrote them a letter to encourage them to stay on the path. And last week we looked at a little bit about Paul himself, about his character, his nature, his desire for reconciliation, his desire for re restoration that was evident in the way that he talked to people and in his actions. We talked about Mark being with him. Mark who was someone that had deserted him early in, in his um, missionary journeys, but now he was with him. We talked a little bit about Onesimus, who was a slave that was useful to Paul, that Paul was going to now send back to his master and ask his master to welcome him as a fellow brother. And we talked about the way that Paul just greets people. He, he, no matter what's going on in their lives, he greets them with grace. And we said that that was probably because of his conversion, because of the way that God found him in his state and provided grace for, to him. So he has that for others. So we're going to continue today in that book of Colossians. Last week we start off with chapter 4, and then we went to chapter 1. We're going to kind of just end with chapter 1 here and move to chapter 2. But to just a side note, just a, this is for, for, um, just an idea to look at, is that chapter breaks and verse annotations are not inspired by God. They were not added to about 1551, and that was to help us to be able to read through. So you will see uh, chapter breaks and verse breaks that sometimes aren't where they should be or where I think they should be. But it doesn't matter. It still allows us to find text in the Word and to walk through it. So we're going to start off with the, near the end of chapter 1 and then move into chapter 2. Because Paul wants to remind the people there of the promise that God had for them. And he says in chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, in all things everything consists. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. See, Paul, what Paul's doing here is reinforcing who Jesus is. He's reinforcing under whose power he's writing the letter. He is reinforcing under whose power he found the church, and he's reinforcing under whose power they have to be able to walk the path that was subscribed for them and to not get sidetracked. And we also talked a little bit last week about when we talk about God's preeminence, some of the names for God himself. And we talked about the fact that he's the Messiah, the vine, the gate, the light of the world, Alpha and Omega, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and the Lord of hosts. All those names help us to understand who he is and all those names help us to understand and remember he is all in all. He's all we really need. He is a cornerstone of our foundation. He is a cornerstone of our faith and we build upon him, we cannot fall. So we're going to continue right there because as we look at how chapter, two, chapter 1 closes, it says here in verse 20 of chapter 1, Him we preach, he's talking about Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end, I also labor, striving accordingly to his working, which works in me mightily. 
And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many as have seen, not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attending to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom all things are hidden, and all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. As he continues to establish the preeminence of God, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 30, 11 verse 30, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, what's happening in this city and what's happening in the churches around the area is that man was bringing in other religions, other doctrines, including Judaism, that came in and were putting additional burdens on the people, things they had to do, another word is legalism, things they had to do they were being told in order for them to be saved. And now Paul is saying, you have that salvation, you have that peace, you have that strength in Jesus, so don't get caught up in all of it. And we'll see that in chapter 2. He's going to tell them and give them warnings of what not to do and what to watch out for. Now, when we get to chapter 3, he's then going to give us instructions of how we function, how we act, what our nature is, what our character is, to be able to live out those, the, the, the life that we have in Christ. So let's jump in and we'll focus a little bit more on, um, on chapter 2. But I'm going to title the sermon today, Trust Me, I'm Doing a Good Work in You. Trust Me, I'm Doing a Good Work in You. And the reason for that title is as we get into chapter 3 and we start talking about different things that we have to do, we'll find out that we've been fallen and some of us aren't quite there yet. But if we continue to trust in God and continue to pray to Him, continue to, to stay close in His Word, He will continue to do a good work in us so that we can get there. So let's read through. I want to read the, the last 14 verses of chapter 2 and then we'll talk about each one. Colossians chapter 2 verse 4. Now I say... Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuading words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught aboundingly in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, <clears throat> according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. <clears throat> For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, <clears throat> having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, 
but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, introducing into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourishes and knits together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ with the basic principles of the world, why, though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. All which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commands and doctrines of men. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, there's a lot here. There's a lot that Paul is saying. He's, he's addressing very directly what's going on and what the teaching is and the influences that come, are coming in. But let's take a look at each verse and, and, and walk through it a little bit here. See, Paul gives us some warnings. He says, Now, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Persuasive words. Here he's talking about folks that come in with eloquence, with clever arguments, that can with great orators that say things that sound wonderful, sound great, but have no substance to them. Right? And uh, he tells them that they are free from rules and instead to be grounded in Christ. In verse 6 he jumps into and says, for you therefore have Jesus Christ the Lord. So walk with him. Walk with Christ. Walk according to the gospel that you've been given. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through. Here's a couple of things he mentions here. Philosophy, empty deceit, traditions of men, and the basic principles of the world. Let's break each one of those down. Philosophies. That simply means the love of wisdom. It was a time where the Greeks loved to debate things and have great, uh, great, great conversations about wisdom, but walk away without ever coming to a point of what that wisdom means. Okay? And they're thinking that through the wisdom they can figure things out. Well, that wasn't true. On our own, we can't figure things out. The second one here is empty deceit. That means false and valueless teaching of those who profess to have secrets for just a, a few people. An inner circle of people. And those were the cults that came in and said, you have to be part of us. If you're part of us, then we have some secrets for you. And those secrets will get, have you, um, give you the meaning of life. Then he talks about traditions of men. These means religious teachings which have been invented by men, which have no foundation in the gospel or scripture whatsoever. A tradition is a fixation on a cu custom which began as a convenience or with or which suited some particular circumstances, and now it becomes real. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, a few years ago, I was in England, and I, was, <clears throat> I went to see the changing of the guard ceremony. And as I watched them fire the cannons, there were four men that came up on horseback, and they got off, but only three men worked on firing the cannon. And they fired the cannon, they get back on the horse, and rode away. And I was curious about what was that fourth man doing? Why was he there? So when I asked the question, what was the purpose of the fourth man? They said, oh, he's there to hold the horses. Because way back when they used to fire real cannons, when they fired them off, the horses used to get scared away. So they had to have a fourth person come in and hold, hold the horses. Well, they still kept that fourth person in the situation, even though they did not have horses. 
So the silver was very useless, but because of tradition, they kept it. And that's the same thing as saying here. There, there are some traditions of men that have absolutely no purpose whatsoever, but we do them because it's tradition. In the last part of that verse, he says, the basic principles of the world. And this refers to Jewish rituals, ceremonies, and ordinances by which men hope to gain God's favor. So that's legalism, doing things that you think, I have to do this, even though I'm saved, if I don't do this, then I'm not in God's favor. He then goes on to say that, um, in verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made with hands, by putting off, the, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now spiritually it meant putting aside evil, corruption, your regenerate nature of man, being, so to speak, being operated on by Christ to move those things out of your way, as he's continued to do with us, as he does the work in us of removing the things from our lives that get in the way of us worshiping him. We were buried with him in baptism and raised with him on the cross. And that's the symbolic idea we have through our baptism right now. And um, verse 13 says, You are being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, giving forgiveness of all trespass. See, we have no desire for God in our sinful state. Unless we move away from that sinful state, we cannot have a relationship with God. Verse 14 through 16 talks a little bit about some customs here. And it says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. Okay. Um, in verse 14, I'm going to jump to verse 16 here. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regard a festival or a new Sabbath. Here we're going to talk a little bit about the law because the Jewish people that came around at that time that were trying to bring back some of the Jewish rituals back in, into the church were still working under the law itself. Now, so where do, you've heard that quite a bit, the law, and God came and he um, fulfilled the law. But what was the law? So as we look back at the, the Bible itself and look back at biblical history, we see that the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. And the Torah is translated the, the law, but it's not just about the law. The Torah is really about the history up to that point, up until uh, the exodus um, out, of, out of Egypt. And the, God made a covenant with Abraham that he would use him to build a nation of people that would worship God and follow God. And there were 613 laws that are given in the Torah. And those laws became obstacles to people. But the basic of those laws was really this, love God and love others. But God, trying to help the people of Israel and his new nation, walk the walk, gave him laws. But the problem is, every time he gave them a law, they would rebel. He gave them more laws and they rebelled. And if you read through all the prophets, you see over and over and over again that the people rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, no matter how many laws they had. And that was the reason God had the plan in place from the very beginning to send his son to help us with that, to take that away from us, that rebellious spirit we had. And he makes a covenant with the people to agree to protect them and bless them. Okay? Some of the laws that were, that were given, uh, given in that 613 were either rituals and customs. First, there were civil laws. These were generally given uh, for the culture of the, of the Israelites, which includes everything from murder to restitution and dietary restrictions. 
There are some ceremonial laws. These laws stand for the customs of a nation. These would have included sacrifice of animals and rejection of certain type of foods. These laws were specifically for the Jews. And third, there were God's moral law. But the people, again, as I said, were caught up in a cycle of rebellion. They would not follow the laws because their hearts were hard. Man needed a transformed heart if he was ever going to truly be able to follow God's law. Isaiah the prophet promised a future leader, that was Jesus, that would lead God's people in obedience to the law. Now, when Jesus came, he tells us he didn't come to abolish the law. And when we use that word abolish, it means to revoke or rescind or dissolve or to render invalid. That wasn't his point. That wasn't his focus. That wasn't his responsibility. His job was to come and fulfill the law, to be able to live through it, to do the things of the law or sacrifice himself so the law could be fulfilled. And in his fulfillment of the law of the prophets, Jesus obtained our external salvation. And through that, one of the things if you take a look at is that because he died on the cross for it, because his blood was spilt in our place and the redemption for our sins, no more were priests required to offer sacrifices and enter the holy places. If you remember when Christ died on the cross, when he died, that curtain that separated the holies of holies from the regular part of the, of the temple, which was over a foot thick, tore him in, 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 in two to open that up so that we have a direct contact with God. Not only that, God sent his Holy Spirit upon us as a promise from Jesus to help us guide us through that. So we can speak, number one, we can speak directly with God. We can pray to him whenever we need to. We don't have to go to the priest. We don't have to take sacrifices of, of animals, of pigeons or goats or whatever that is, and take there and sacrifice those just to, to be able to um, be able to speak to God. And in Jesus' coming, he personally obeyed the laws while he was here. He fulfilled the messianic predictions, and he empowered the people to obey the, the law that was there. He brought out the true meaning, he explained the true means behind the rituals and ceremonies, and he even gave additional um, commands to further the intentions of the law so we understood them better. And now I'll come to that in a minute. But Matthew 22, verse 34, he, he says this, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And he said to him, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the great and first command. And the second is, you should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all the laws of the prophets. So the idea behind that was Jesus was saying that if you go through the law of the prophets, the, law, the rules that God gave was to fulfill those two commands, is to love God and to love your neighbor. Mark chapter 12, as one of the scribes came up and uh, Mark 12 verse 28, as one of the scribes came up and heard him dispute with another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which command is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the God your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor and yourself. There is no greater command than these. So we see that the command is reiterated both in Matthew and in Mark to let us know the clarity of that, that if we are able to walk the path of being able to love God, if we truly love God, then our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, our desires will fall in line with Him. And in doing so, we can love our neighbor as ourselves. See, Jesus agreed with the laws of the prophets that is, is out of the heart comes a sinful nature. 
And he, and he said he came to solve that problem, to fulfill the law, to help with that sinful nature. Jesus said that all the commands of the Torah could be fulfilled with that one great command a, by a change in the nature of the heart. He, and he gave additional clarification for some of the laws also. For instance, he says, the law it says, do you not murder or do not murder? Do not kill someone. And I see not kill someone is a good thing to do. However, when Jesus looked at it, he said, when you treat somebody with disrespect and nurse resentment in your heart, you violate God's moral law because you're not treating a person with love. That goes back to your heart. So the Messiah, God, he fully loved God and others. He showed all the nations that God is truly like through his act of compassion and mercy, and even his enemies, even to his enemies in his death. Jesus told his followers that he would send God's spirit to, trans to transfer their hearts so they could follow him and fulfill the purpose, to love God and love others. Love God and love others. And we'll see that as we go through uh, a little bit more in chapter 3, how we fulfill that, that part, love others. Now, again, again, back to Colossians verse 17. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 18. He says, Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen and vainly puffed up by the flesh, and not holding fast to the head from whom all body nourishes and knits together by joints and ligaments, grows in the increase of his God. To live with a consciousness that God is head, rather than get caught up in other things, as soon as... You have to be able to discern. Last night we had a discussion at home about what discernment means. And be able to discern when we hear things that take us away, to pull us away from, from, from the true uh, Christ head and putting him at the focus of all things. Verse 20 says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, which are the rituals, why, though live in the world, did you subject yourself to regulations? So if you have died with Christ, if he has died for us, why do we need to have regulations? Even today, you'll see that some people try to bring some legalism in, some regulations, some things that are not really part of the word, but because of their own traditions they have in their own churches, these things now become gospel for them. Now, Paul ends chapter 2 by saying, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So what he's saying there is you can do all these things, you can carry out all these rituals, but it doesn't help you in your sin nature. And your sin nature is a thing that is keeping you away from God. Now as you move into chapter 3, he says here in chapter, in chapter 3, because he wants to really draw a distinction between carnality and Christ. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things of the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then you go back to what Jesus says, where your heart, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So his ask is not to build up treasures on earth, not to be focused on the things of the earth. We need things here to function, but not to focus on them. If we lose all of them, do we still have God? Do we still have salvation? Do we still have Christ? Now as he Transitions from there of chapter 2 of telling us the things of, we, of our heart nature 
and, and sticking to the preeminence of God. He now, in the second part of chapter 3, moves into some very specific things about how we behave and how we change our behavior and what behavior in Christ looks like. Because if we go back all the way back to the reason for the law and the reason why God wanted to have a nation of Israelites that followed him is he wanted to show the rest of the world what God was like. They failed to do it. But he wants us to be like that today, to, to, to have a different nature in us so that we can show who people are, show people who God is through us and our, and our acts. So he starts off in chapter th 3, verse 5. He says, put, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Because those type of things that we read before, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, are causing people to sin, are our sins, but are causing people to continue to move away because they desire those things more than they desire God. But, he, but again, he goes back to a grace component here because in verse 7 he says, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So for, for us as Christians, there had been a time in our lives where we didn't walk with God. And we lived lives, that, like for me, I lived a life I thought was a, a pretty good life, but I wasn't walking a righteous life. I wasn't doing things in accordance with God's will. Once I became a Christian, I can look back at my life and realize how sinful my life was at that time, even though at the time I thought it was a pretty good life. And he wants us to know that no matter what we think of ourselves, if we're not walking with Christ, we are walking a sinful life. Now, in verse 80 says, Now, you yourselves are to put off certain things. Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And I want to stick with the, the first word in that, which is anger. Anger seems to be the nature of the day right now. It seems to almost be celebrated to be angry. A lot of folks are angry for different reasons. Some folks are angry and they don't even know why. But we have to really be aware that anger can take us down a path of destruction. Let me give you just one example. Over the past two weeks, I've been reading many articles about people's response when they've gone into a store and they've been told to wear a mask or asked to wear a mask. And there are people that have been killed because of that. Now, where does that come from? How much anger does it have to be inside of you that when someone asks you to wear a simple mask over your face, you would assault them or kill them? You see, anger is a strong spirit of dislike or animosity, a vengeful spirit, a settled, a settled feeling of hatred, having hatred in your heart. Anger can become sinful when it is motivated by pride, when it is unproductive and thus distorts God's purpose. It is sinful. One obvious sign that anger has turned to sin is when, instead of attacking the problem, you attack the person. Anger becomes sin when it is allowed to boil over without restraint and it turns into wrath, resulting in a scenario which is, in which hurt is multiplied. Anger is also a sin when the anger one refuses to be pacified, pacified, holds a grudge, or keeps it all inside. And the problem is that can be self-destructive because this can cause depression and irritability over the little things which often are unrelated. The Ephesians 4.26 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do, let the, do, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. When I was in Seattle, I served the gentleman who, who did prison ministry. 
And Freddie told me that whenever he talked to a prisoner in jail, he would always make the statement to them. He would say, you know what your biggest problem is? Your biggest problem is you don't know how to forgive. And as a result of that, they have anger, that anger driven them to do things that land them in jail. Now he moves on from there from verse 8 about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Let me go back to the filthy language. What is your language like? Is your language something that you could say in any type of gathering? Do you have things you say only with certain sets of people? Or are there are things that you might say just online that you wouldn't normally say, say in church, in this environment. We have to be very careful of what comes out of our mouth what we speak, how, and how we speak to others. Your words carry a lot of weight. Your words can be judged, and your words really show what type of person you are. So if you're using language, using words that are not edifying, that are, as it says here, filthy, then those things, have to be, you have to really carve those away from you. Get rid of them, change the way you think, change your attitude, and have a language that's edifying to others. Verse 9 says, do not lie to one another. Okay? It says here that since you've been put off the old man with his deeds, we have to be honest with folks, be honest and open with, with people. Because again, we're trying to show Christ to people, and Christ did not lie to anyone. So if you lie to someone, why should they believe you when you try to share the gospel with them? Why should they believe you when you try to tell them that their life is not right? Because they're going to say, well, look at your life. See? Now, as we continue on putting off the old behavior, it says here in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also forgive them. And that's something that Christ also addressed. And Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And he was trying to do a, multi, a math problem. He was saying, your forgiveness should be continual, ongoing. And how do we do that? Because in verse 14 it says, above all of these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Our love for others is a bond of perfection. Our love for Christ is a bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we have to be thankful in all things. So that heart that we have that allows us to have a different nature is something we should rejoice in because God, God gave that to us through the Holy Spirit. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, in teaching, so that, so that you can admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ and give thanks to the Father through him. And he wants us to, whatever we do, our conduct, our thoughts, our actions, whatever we say, how we treat people, is all in the name of Jesus. So let's think about that for a second. All those things we talked about here is... If you're not doing those things, are you really doing things in the name of Jesus? And he's saying do all things in the name of Jesus. So you can't lie in the name of Jesus. You can't swear in the name of Jesus. You can't be angry in the name of Jesus. You can't have malice in the name of Jesus. You can't have blasphemy in the name of Jesus. Okay? So if you have those things, why do you still have them? 
work on them. And it takes time. And sometimes God will work on you initially and quickly, but sometimes it takes some time. There was a gentleman I worked with who was a jazz drummer, and he told me that when he came to know the Lord, from the moment he accepted Christ, he no longer swore. God lifted that from him. Now, to other people, it takes a while. It takes them years to get through that, but they worked on it. They prayed about it. So now we're going to take a little transition here and look at how does some of those things really live out in real life. And Paul brings up an example of a home to use it as an example of how we should be, how we should function. And if you can imagine during that time, during the first century, what households were like. It means the man of the household was the truly the king of the household. What he said ruled. And he sometimes they ruled with an iron fist. But God, Paul comes in and he gives a command to the entire family to how they should function. And I think this is used as an example for us of how we should live our lives. In verse 18, now, Verse 18 sometimes is what a lot of people bristle about because the word submission is in there. But think about the, the context it's coming from. He's saying the home should be different than what was before. So we'll take a look at what it says. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And that means, I think that means there with, that you, you can submit to your husbands. But the caveat is without compromising loyalty to Christ. There should be no, nothing that we do, no matter what situation we're in, where we compromise to Christ at all. If it means civil disobedience, it means civil, civil disobedience. But here he's saying, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So if he's going to ask, a husband's going to ask a wife to do something that's sinful, that's not something that she needs to obey. Now it comes to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. And what that, I think that means is to seek her highest good not his own welfare, to kind of help her flourish and to honor her. I remember um, a gentleman that preached at church once, and he was a retired pastor, and when he was going to be retired, he asked his wife what she would like to do with the time they had together, now the freedom they had, because they had traveled a lot and been different places, and he thought she was going to say, well, let's go on a cruise or let's do this. And he, she said, she says, I want to go out in a more rural area and have a piece of land that I can garden. And that surprised him because he wasn't ready to really settle down. But he realized she had followed him throughout their entire life, marriage life, from one assignment to the other. And now she's looking for a place where she can set down roots. And that's what he did. And his words were, he now was watching her flourish in the life they had together. Then it says, children, Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. It gets back to the father. Father, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So for fathers, I ask you this question. Is there discipline in your discipline? Do you show love and respect to your children instead of impulsive anger? Do you explain to them clearly the reasons of your actions? Do you cover them as they recover? The idea is you should discipline in humility rather than, than uh, in, in authoritarianism. Again, now it goes to bond servants. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So he even talks about the folks that's under bondage, how they should function, how they should act. Again, doing things that are pleasing to the Lord. 
And then it says, whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not to me, knowing that from God you will receive the rewards of inheritance. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done wrong, and there is no partiality. And then he comes up and says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair. Know that you also have a master in heaven. So if you take a that look at that family at that, that time, which had a husband, a wife, children, and servants, God touched, uh, Paul touches every one of those people in that household and tells them that there's a different way they should function. But he goes back to the, the leader of the household more than once because it's a high responsibility for somebody that God put in leadership. So he tells that person to love his wife, to not to provoke his children and encourage them, and to pay his bondservants and treat them well. Because he says he also has a, um, a, a master that's in heaven that will look upon him and judge him based upon his actions and his deeds. And so Paul was saying there is different ways that we should function because we are in Christ. There are different ways that we should treat people because we're in Christ. There's a different level of love we should show because we have Christ. Because we are set aside from this world and we need to be an example to the world. People need to look at us, look at our family life, look at the way we do things in our job. We might have jobs we love, but look at the way we do things in our job and say, what is different about that person? Why are they so happy in all these circumstances. If you're moaning all the time at work, are you really showing Christ in your work itself? And near the end of, uh, sorry, the beginning of chapter four, he continues with two more verses, which I read here. Um, it says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying for us that God will open doors for us for the word to speak, the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in change, that I may make it manifest as I speak. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seeding with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. So Paul is asking them to pray for him at the very end here, that he can continue to preach the word, that he continue to spread the gospel, that he continue to impact lives of people around in the world. And he's asking them to walk a walk that's in a, and have a speech that people may know how to answer one another, how to answer people when they come to you with questions, how to know how to answer them as he did when they are sliding off the path to be able to do it in a graceful way. So the, as the idea is, as we look at this book of Colossians, is that your view of Christ, because we talked about Christ in the very beginning, about his preeminence, his power, his glory, and it's very important to realize that your view of Christ will impact every area of your life. If you take him seriously, if you look at him in the way that he talked about himself, if you look in the way Paul looks at him, you will have a different life and it will affect you differently. It will bring joy to you when you're having conflict in your life. It will bring joy to you when you realize that the things that you wanted, the dreams that you had, are not the dreams that you're going to be given. See, Paul saw that the, the problems in, the, in, in Colossus' church had practical importance as well. He says, believers have died with Christ, therefore we need to die to our sins. He's asking them not to get caught up in the things that pull them back into sin. See, we've all been raised with Christ, therefore we must live with him and put on qualities that are motivated by Christ's love. Jesus is our Lord all over. 
The life of the Christian is a life of submission to Christ. So everything we do is really submission to Him. To give up of ourselves for things that belong to Him. So are you following after Jesus as you should? Are you doing the things... Do you have a heart for Him, number one, so that you can have an attitude towards Him, number two? Our faith in Christ should transform the relationships we have in every area of our lives, in our home, in our churches, in our world. How you react to the social issues going on right now has a direct impact on your walk with the Lord. How you react to conflict in your family has a direct impact on your walk with the Lord. And how you function in church, how do you serve? Do you serve with an open heart? Do you complain about things? Has a direct impact. Lead lives worthy of the Lord. Be mature in Christ. Disregard worldly wisdom. Put death to sinful nature. Replace bad behavior with righteous behavior. That is how you can get to be a child of Christ and continue to be his example. As I said before, trust God. He is doing a good work in you. He will continue to work in you as you walk through these things. As we stumble through all these things ourselves, he will continue to do that. That is our blessing today. Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I ask you, Lord, to allow us to, each day as we wake up, to pay attention to who you are, to pay attention to your love for us, to pay attention to your sacrifice for us. Lord, and may we put ourselves and our desires to bed. May we put those aside and be able to walk in the path you have for us. May we not be selfish in our desires of many things. And may we give in to others and think of them first. We love you first so that we can love others. We thank you, Lord, as we pray for the name of your Son. Amen. Have a wonderful week.